This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. What's good, fam? It's your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm D in the ED. And we're coming back to you with another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. And today I have another special one for you. And this one's going to be pretty cool because this is going to be my series. If you know me on social media, if you know me in person, if you practice with me, you know I got a beef at Bicarb. And this is going to be a series dedicated to my evidence-based beef with bicarb and I'm talking about sodium bicarbonate. But before I get into that, I really want to shout out the new website that's dropped our sister company, Pharmacy Friday Pearls. And if you type in pharmacyfriday.com or pharmacy-pearls.com, you're going to see our new this amazing website that's going to house more than 50 topics that you can get your hands on and review on your own time. There's like 15 courses right now that you can go through and take a uh, take a test afterwards. And it's a really cool website. So I definitely want you guys to go out and check that out. Uh, Pharmacy Friday Pearls. You can check us out on Twitter at Pharmacy Pearls underscore and definitely go check that out. But let's go ahead and get into this topic. So I know a lot of you guys are probably asking, Jim, what's the issue with this? It's bicarbonate hyperkalemia, we do it all the time. And I think for me, when I sit down and think about the evidence and look at what works and what is very, you know, beneficial in those critical moments and just the real hyperkalemia, I'm not talking about you got a KF 5.4 and this patient is always had a 5.2, they're on, you know, ACE inhibitor and they're cool. I'm not talking about those patients. I'm talking about those patients that are 6.5 or 6 and they look like crap. Those are the people who we're going to be giving a ton of things to, especially if they have EKG changes. I don't want to delay any of those real therapies, those real, you know, potassium reducing agents for bicarb. And I think more of me from the academic side really just get my my gears grinded because we love to teach that, oh, bicarb does this and it it causes intracellular shift because of acidosis and your patient doesn't have acidosis. Oh, we well, bicarb's going to do this and that. And we like to make bicarb just one size fit all and one administration fit all. And that's not necessarily the case in the data since the early 70s and 80s have said that. So that's my, my my initial beef and the fact that we are so just happy to give an amp of bicarb, but we're terrified to give 3% hypertonic saline in a patient that has symptomatic hyponatremia. We're terrified. You know, I, I can't get someone to give that, but I can have someone give an equivalent of 5.8% of sodium chloride, but we just are so used to it. And that's my major beef that we just get to the point where we're so familiar with certain things that we just do it. And I want to use bicarb appropriately. I want to use it in the appropriate way. And I think that there is a way to use bicarb and hyperkalemia, but I'm going to leave that to the end. All right. So for all my former college junkies out there, 
You want to know how in the world is hyperkalemia and sodium bicarb and this whole alkalosis theory? How does that even work? And I'm going to go ahead and shout out, you know, Josh Farkas from Palm Crit and, and some of the articles that he put in his post. And I, I have that on the show notes on the website. But we're going to look at three different mechanisms here. We're going to have that translator shift into the skeletal muscle, which is obviously the most talked about. We're going to also have some renal excretion that occurs. And I think the one mechanism that is forgotten about is the dilutional effect of giving sodium bicarbonate in an isotonic solution. So let's jump a little bit more and let's get a little nerdy about this transcellular shift into the skeletal muscle because it actually gets pretty dang on cool. So when looking at the sodium hydrogen exchange pathway, sodium is going to enter the cell at the same time hydrogen is leaving the cell. And once you have that buildup in sodium, What's going to happen is you're going to have that gradient come across to where now the sodium potassium ATPase that kicks into high gear and it's going to kick out about three sodiums and then then uptake about two potassiums for those three that's going out. So that's going to be your pathway that is most commonly taught. So the cool thing about the sodium hydrogen exchange is that acidosis will again lead to an increase in intracellular hydrogen ions and then it's going to decrease the intracellular sodium. What that's going to do is going to decrease the activity of that exchange, but it's also going to have an impact on the sodium potassium ACPase leading to decreased activity of that, which then makes it a little bit more difficult for potassium to enter the cell through this particular pathway. To add insult to injury, we're also going to have this passive potassium efflux through potassium channels that's going to kick out potassium as well. So you have a decrease in intracellular shift and you have nothing that's going to counteract the potassium channels leaking out some potassium as well. You're going to have a, a good bit of intracellular potassium that's already there. And then when you have hyperkalemia, it's going to make the whole process even worse. Another cool pathway is when you have the sodium bicarbonate co-transport. And what that's going to do is going to carry that sodium intracellular and kick out the sodium once it gets intracellular to exchange for your potassium being intracellular. So instead of it being, you know, we're, we're leaving a hydrogen, basically we're going to be including potassium with bicarbonate and they're both going to go intracellular using that sodium, sodium bicarbonate co-transport and then activating the sodium potassium ATPase. And lastly, one of the most forgotten pathways when we talk about uh, potassium is that we have this issue with chloride as well, in which chloride is going to have a exchange with bicarbonate. And once you have an increase in your chloride levels, that's going to kick out your potassium. So it's going to go the opposite direction. So this is one of the pathways that we necessarily don't want to happen. And one of the key factors that's associated with this is going to be acidosis again, because we're going to have a decrease in the bicarbonate levels that we need. And the bicarbonate is going to try to kick out of the cell. And one of the ways that's going to do that is using this bicarbonate chloride exchange pathway. So this is going to bad and acidosis is going to lead to an increase in this particular mechanism. And it's going to decrease the mechanisms that we talked about before. All right. So that's going to talk about the transcellular shift. Let's move into the renal excretion. And this one's a little easier. So we know that acute metabolic acidosis impairs potassium excretion by the kidneys, whereas metabolic alkalosis actually facilitates the potassium excretion. And it's probably going to be due to the potassium channels in the distal nephron, which are downregulated by acidosis and upregulated by alkalosis. And the mechanism that we don't talk about enough that's probably the most simple 
It's the fact that we have this dilutional effect. If we give a large volume of an isotonic bicarbonate solution, we're going to be able to dilute the amount of potassium that's in the vascular space at that time by one to two liters. And there are some calculations out there that I won't get into that our nephro colleagues probably can tell you all about that gives you an estimate of how much you should see a reduction in potassium. But those are our mechanisms, particularly looking at the mechanism that occurs in a isotonic administration of sodium bicarbonate. So let's move on and talk about the different formulations that's out there because there's a group of people that said, oh, Jim, I thought all of them were the same concentration. And that's not necessarily the case. You know, your infusion is going to be about a 1.4 infusion where for the average person, again, this is speaking to my American colleagues. So, you know, bear with me if you're overseas, you're going to be using 150 milliequivalents and putting that in a liter of either sterile water or D5W. And that's going to get you a 1.4%. What we're going to see used in the carbojet or the, the valve is an hypertonic, 8.4% hypertonic sodium bicarbonate. And I will always refer to it as a hypertonic solution because that's exactly what it is. If it was sodium chloride, you know, the hospital administration be ready to shut me down by saying, just go ahead and slam up amp of 6% sodium chloride. No, you know, no one says anything about that. But this 8.4% sodium bicarbonate, which is equivalent to 5.8% sodium chloride, this is a hypertonic solution. There's no way around it. And we slam this into people as fast as we can. We get a good forearm pump and we just push it through a small bore IV, even through the hand. We just don't care and we just do it. So consider that for a second. My beef with it is the fact that most of the adverse effects are going to occur because of this. All this talk about you can have an increase in intracellular acidosis. You can have all these things that can occur. And that's that's OK. My biggest thing that comes with this is the IV compatibility is an issue. If I'm giving this hypertonic solution, it's much more likely that I'm going to blow my line and I need insulin in. I need calcium. I need the dextrose in the things that really matter. Those are the drugs that I need in. And if I need to repeat those, which I frequently do for calcium in a patient that's a little unstable from an EKG standpoint, I don't want sodium bicarb ruining that. Again, I'll talk about later on where I see the value of this hypertonic solution. But for the most part, I don't, I don't want that. And it also distracts from other therapies. There's countless times I work in large academic centers. So I work with a variety of providers. It's countless times I see an amplifier given and that's it. There's EKG changes potentially. There's issues that can be addressed with insulin, glucose, and ibuterol. There's, there's, there's many issues that can be addressed with some isotonic solution, but we, we just give them an amplifier and just sit there and look at them. And we think that's enough. It distracts you from the real therapies. For the average patient that doesn't have EKG changes, that you're going to give the other stuff to, that nephros involved, bicarb is trash. There is, you, you, you shouldn't give it by itself as monotherapy. That's trash. If you, you do, just meet me outside, cash me outside, as they would say, because that's the wrong thing to do, giving a bicarb as a monotherapy to treat hyperkalemia. So I'll go ahead and let that rant in. Let's move forward. All right, guys, let's let's talk data. Let's get into 
what the studies have to say. And we don't have a lot of new stuff because I think the people who really dig deep into this realize that this was a trash therapy and we should just focus on the things that really works for us. So let's talk about hypertonic bicarbonate. I'm talking about the 8.4. I'm talking about the amp that everyone seems to love. You know, they, when they wake up in the morning, they kiss an amp of bicarbonate. That's what they do. So where did all this crap come from? So back in 1959, there was a case series done by Dr. Swartz. And what they did was they had a 5% bicarbonate fusion over two to six hours. There were four people in this study, guys. Um, they had resolution of EKG abnormalities in all the patients. But within 24 hours, half of the people died. So two of those people died. And somebody got a hold of that and was like, oh, my God, this is phenomenal. And to their credit for EKG changes, I'm not going to fight you over an amplifier. Um, But if you're talking about the reduction in potassium and we're talking about giving an amplifier IV push, that's my beef. The first study that looked at this in this detail that got popularized was this study done by 1959. And it was, again, a bicarb drip given over two to six hours. But let's get to the 80s. Let's talk about this study done by Bloomberg. And all of this is going to be in the show notes, guys. The 1988, again, it's observational trial. Only 10 people in it. But what they did was pretty cool. So they had a group of people that got the hypertonic 8.4% bicarb drip over an hour. Then you had those who got a 1.4 isotonic bicarb drip over an hour. Then you got those who got an epi drip at 0.05 mics per kilo per minute over an hour. And you got those people who got an insulin drip at 0.5 units per kilo per minute over an hour. Cool study that looked at real things. What they found was that the hypertonic and the isotonic infusions actually did increase bicarbonate and increase the pH, but there was no impact on potassium. Interestingly, it actually went up a little bit from 5.66 to 5.83. Then we looked at things like epi, it had a decrease in potassium of 5.57 to 5.25. Uh, and we looking at insulin, did a phenomenal job lowering the potassium levels from 5.62 to 4.7. And again, just clearly to show that the bicarb didn't really do anything when you're looking at this data. So move on to another study that was done by the same author in 1992. Looked at something very similar. It was an observational study with 12 people in it, small. They looked at using an 8.4% bicarb drip over an hour, and they had 240 milliequivalents over an hour. So like five amps, they just did straight. So you really got the dose that you, you needed. And what they found was that when they compared that to an infusion that was given after after that, that initial bolus at 1.4%, they gave over five hours. There was no change in potassium in hour one and two. But guess what happened? At hour you know, four and six, they seen a decrease in potassium by 0.6 and 0.7 milliequivalents per deciliter, which is approximately half the min Half of that was calculated to be due to the volume expansion, due by putting it in the drip. The cool thing is, though, peak T waves in the, in the EKG of seven patients disappeared after one hour in only one patient. So I would expect this to be a little little better, but it didn't show that. So bicarb, bolus, sucks again. All right, let's move to another study, different author. Dr. Kim in 1996, another observational study, about 12 people. What they did was they looked at an 8.4% bicarb over one hour and they compared that to an insulin drip at 0.5 units per kilo per minute over one hour. 
what do they find? They definitely seen an increase in bicarbonate, a serum bicarbonate, but no change in serum potassium, 6.4 to 6.3. That did nothing. Um, it wasn't statistically significant at all. And then when you're looking at your insulin drip, we've seen that 6.3 drop all the way down to 5.7. Again, the combination therapy, again, led to a decrease as well. But when looking at just monotherapy with sodium bicarbonate, it didn't do the job once again. Let's just keep shoulder down, guys. I'm going to butcher this name. I'm going to butcher it pretty bad. So sorry in, in advance. So Nguji and colleagues in 1997 had another case series of 10 patients. What they did was something similar to what we do today. They compared insulin at 10 units plus some dextrose. They also looked at a bicarb bolus over 15 minutes. They also looked at salmuterol 0.5 milligrams IV. They did a combination of all of those to see what happened. And what they found was that the bicarb did lead to a decrease in potassium by 0.5 at 30 minutes. So this is the first study that actually showed any, any benefit. And the combination therapy with all of those was more effective than those with sodium bicarb. So this is the first study that I, I saw amongst the others that said it did anything. But again, this is a case series of 10 people. Uh, moving on to the last thing I would look at when looking at the hypertonic sodium bicarb. Again, Dr. Kim and colleagues in 1996, they had an observational study with nine HD patients. And what they did was they had 8.4% bicarb. They gave two milliequivalents per kilo over in half an hour. And they gave salmuterol at 15 milligrams in a nebulized form for 10 minutes. And they compared the therapies to either one of those or in combination. The infusion led to a significant rise in sodium bicarbonate level. However, it was ineffective in lowering potassium. It didn't do anything. Uh, Simuterol did lower potassium by 0.57, and that was statistically significant in all patients except for two. The last article that I thought was super interesting, because I always hear that maybe bicarb potentiates the actions of insulin or arbuterol. In this study done by Allen colleagues that was done in 1996, what they did was they got people to take this isotonic bicarb, uh, isotonic saline, insulin plus bicarb, insulin plus saline, albuterol plus bicarb, or albuterol plus saline. And I thought it was pretty cool that neither the isotonic bicarb or the saline decreased potassium much. And I was like, well, maybe it helps out when given with other therapies. And when they looked at bicarb with insulin, bicarb with albuterol, compared to saline, there was no difference. So again, it may do something, but you have to find the correct patient because the studies really don't add up. So I thought that was another cool article. And again, all of this will be in the show notes. Based off data, most people only have one study that they can really say, actually, the hypertonic bicarb does anything in a case series of 10 people. But why is that the case? And I think that this hypertonic solution is where I'm really you know, wanting to harp down on because the nephro colleagues would tell you that we have this concept of hypertonic solutions increasing serum potassium levels due to shifting the potassium out of the cell. And one of these mechanisms is going to be solute drag. And you can go over to, to Palmquart. They really dug deep into this and they talked about it needs to be an equilibrium with the serum that causes potassium to leave the cell. It is going to be just dragged out. And they really talked about this in, in a good sense. And I have one of the articles that talk 
a little bit more about this, but again, hypertonic solutions, we think it works really well when you're thinking about for cerebroedema, we think about how it does that, but we really don't think about the impact of a hypertonic solution in a patient that already has a high potassium. So that's my my, my review of the, the bolus data. Let's move on to some of the infusion data, see what it has to talk about. All right, guys, so we can also throw that sort study that I looked at with that infusion over 46 hours as the infusion data. And again, they did the 5.5% sodium bicarb over two to six hours and they had some EKG resolutions. But the next study that came in by Farley and colleagues in 1977 was another observation study looking at 14 patients and they had sodium bicarb anywhere from 89 to 134 milliequivalents in a liter of D5. And they infused that over four to six hours to they compared it to just D5 a liter over 46 hours. And the cool thing is they, they found that in that isotonic infusion group, they had a decrease in serum potassium by 0.15 milliequivalents for every one milliequivalent per deciliter increase in bicarbonate. And of course, D5 was not effective in reducing potassium levels. But moving on to Gutierrez and colleagues in 1991, they had an observational study with about 18 patients comparing that 1.4% sodium bicarbonate in syrup water dosed at one milliequivalent per kilo over two hours. And they compared that to the hypertonic 8.4% one milliequivalent per kilo over five minutes, which is traditionally done. And I think this is a pretty good study because this is what's actually like done in practice. So the isotonic sodium bicarb led to an increase and bicarbonate by three milliequivalents per deciliter and a decrease in potassium by 0.35 milliequivalents at 180 minutes. What did the, the hypertonic do? It led to a slight increase in bicarb and osmolarity and it did not change potassium levels. So boom, that, that should have been the, the key thing that knocked all of this out back in 91. But let's just, you know, we can also revisit that Bloomberg study that in 1992 that had 12 patients that compared giving a bicarb as a hypertonic bolus over one hour and then compared that to the 1.4% infusion that was done over five hours. And again, to repeat, and that said, it had no change in potassium in hours one and two, but they did see a decrease in potassium by 0.6 and 0.74 at hours four and six, respectively. So all I'm seeing here overall is that maybe an infusion can be, be useful uh, the, the bolus, yet one study that said it did anything. You got a host more saying that it's trash. So I'm going to go with the, the majority here and say that the bolus is trash. And before we get done talking about the data, I think it's key to mention that there are certain populations, especially those without acidosis, that may not benefit from this. And the Bloomberg study and the Allen study found that even isotonic solutions were not effective among those patients. And that may just be due to the fact that they already have um, uh, initial bicarb level that was like 22 milliequivalents. So if you don't have that upregulation by acidosis and you have downregulation by alkalosis, if you don't have that, that initial translator shift may not happen. And for those people who want to come at me with the bicarb ICU trial that felt the meet its primary outcome of any difference in mortality, they tell me, well, Jim, they had a reduction in potassium using that, you know, 4.2% hypertonic bicarb infusion. And 
I'm like, yeah, that's great. But 80% of their patients were also on vasopressors. I don't know who was actually receiving insulin. So if you want to throw that study at me, I, I, I just say there's so many confounders to you're trying to, to push it with that study. And again, yeah, it probably did reduce it. But I think we have a history of anything that's beta 2 stimulating also doing a phenomenal job of reducing potassium. And that's really where I want to go with the data for that bolus versus the drip. But instead of me being just a big hater and not really having any conscience when it comes to this, I'm going to tell you what I think hypertonic bicarb does work well for. All right, guys. So for this part, I want to give a major shout out to Jim Priano out of Advent Health Orlando. This guy was a phenomenal mentor to me. And I went down this path of just trying to find the answer to certain questions because of him asking me this one question. We're sitting in the ED and he said, hey, how does calcium work for hyperkalemia? And I was like, you know, you're not going to get me with that one. You know, I know for sure that calcium doesn't decrease potassium. So I was like, you know, hey, it stabilized the cardiac membrane. And then he asked me how. And I crapped myself. <laughs> and that was what led me down this path of trying to figure out the ac- actual mechanism to hyperkalemia and its impact on EKG changes and this impact on just anything from a electrocardiac standpoint. So just to review, uh, it's been put out there. And I want to give a major shout out also to Tony Brew, who did a phenomenal tweetatorial that I made sure I put in the show notes that you guys got to go check out. But it's pretty cool to think about what's actually happening when it comes to EKG changes due to hyperkalemia. So what we do know is that in a persistent increase in rest and potential inactivates sodium channels that's required for phase zero, that first initial part. And sodium is going to be huge for that. And this is actually going to lead to a decrease in membrane excitability. And that's where you're going to see prolonged QRS and things of that nature. So we know that in an average patient, the resting potential should be about negative 90 millivolts. And when you have that, you're going to have the maximum number of sodium channels that are going to be open and ready to use. And that's where you're going to have that steep increase in phase zero. But as the resting potential increases, when you're looking at hyperkalemia, you're going to have fewer channels opening and leading to slower depolarization. That's going to be key because you're going to have a decrease in VMAX. And that's going to be, you know, in the actual name of this particular type of sodium channel is your NAV 1.5 sodium channels. And that's going to be key at activation of phase zero depolarization. So we always talk about calcium and I think it's pretty interesting. And I think you got to go check the show notes out to look at some of these pictures that display this in, in an easier manner. So what's going to happen is you're going to have this lag. And when it comes to depolarization, because you have basically no sodium that's going to be able to go through these sodium channels because of the hyperkalemia. And what's interesting is if you give calcium, that's going to help introduce some of the extracellular sodium into the cell and it's going to help correct your EKG changes. So for calcium, that's phenomenal. But we also know that by just increasing the amount of extracellular sodium concentration, this can also increase the velocity of flow across the cell membrane when these channels are open. And then you're going to basically force your way to have a decrease in QRS interval by just flooding the heart with a ton of hypertonic you know, sodium. And there's a few ways to do this. And most of the, the data is going to be with hypertonic saline, which you guys are probably 
terrified of is the devil. You know, 3% is bad. And one of the things that you know for symptomatic hypotreatment as a backup plan, you can use sodium bicarb. There's actually a few studies in, in pigs. There's a few animal studies and a few human studies that was done back in the 50s and the 60s that use hypertonic saline. And it actually showed that when you gave, when you pre-treated people with hypertonic saline anywhere from like 5 to 6%, it actually protected the heart against otherwise fatal effects of like lethal injection. And that was pretty cool because you didn't see that with the lower concentrations in these isotonic solutions that I'm talking about. You only saw it with the hypertonic solutions of, of sodium chloride. And I'm just making this reference because I know that when you look at the composition of sodium bicarbonate, it's 8.4%. It's going to be equivalent to about 5.8% sodium chloride. So what I'm saying is that if you're going to use it, if it's going to have a place in therapy, if I'm going to get off my beef bicarb, this is the case you should use it in severe hypernatremia. You have a, a, a potassium to seven. Your patient looks like crap. Their EKG looks like my daughter just drew all over it. And that's what you're looking at. Those are the people who may actually benefit quite well. And some of the side effects that you get with giving that bicarb is hypocalcemia. Well, if you give the calcium and give you get bicarb, you're going to work on two different mechanisms that actually shorten your QRS interval and that can potentially cure your patient's EKG changes. So that's my area where I really think it's useful. There's a few studies that you can look at. You're looking at hypertonic saline and the correction of EKG changes. But if you don't have that in a pinch, this is where I'm like, hey, I'm going to I'm recommending bicarb in this situation. And that's where I think that maybe some of the cardiac arrest data is going to be from. That's why I believe that the benefit really is going to be for sodium bicarb. It's hypertonic sodium bicarb in severe hyperkalemia. So that's really it, guys. Uh, I can go on and on. I have a few more episodes talking about different things, but we're getting at the 30 minute mark. So I just want to just summarize everything that I said Um, when talking about using hypertonic sodium bicarb to reduce potassium, I think it's trash. Uh, when using drips, I think if you put it in the right patient, they're, not, if they're acidotic, it may be a good patient in it. There are some data support it use. When you're talking about what bicarb in this hypertonic state is good for, is correcting that EKG change and working really well as like a brother-sister combination when it comes to calcium. So if, you, if you're going to use it, this is where I think it may be beneficial, especially in the acute phase, and then get your drip on board. Again, I, I think my, my major beef is that what, do you, what are you using it for? And what are you teaching your medical students, your residents, your, your pharmacy students and residents? What are you teaching them that this is going to be useful, useful for? And there may be some data out there that um, using this hypertonic sodium bicarb may be beneficial in patients that are hyponatremic. That could be a case, but I think there's still a ton of data that needs to be, you know, published. There's still a ton of stuff that needs to be talked about because most of the information that we talk about today, particularly when looking at the EKG changes, it's going to be before the 80s. You know, all this stuff is before my time. So uh, definitely reach out to me, farmd underscore end ed. Let me know what you think. I know I'm going to piss a few people off, so I'm going to go ahead and cap it at that. 
Uh, thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Farm So Heart podcast. Definitely check us out at farmsoheart.com. Check us out and get to see some of these show notes. Uh, hit me up on Twitter, anything like that, just to have more conversation when it comes to this. I, I can go back and forth about, you know, my disdain for using this just for reduction of potassium. So I'm going to go ahead and close out, guys. Thank you for listening again. And as I always say, man, hey, you don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work at an ED, but everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. All you got to do is ride and maintain, because we taking that thing straight from what? Right advice. I say all you got to do, make sure you treat the pain, because we taking that thing straight from what? Right advice. I say all you got to do is not go insane, because we taking that thing straight from what? Right advice. I say all you got to do. It's try to maintain, cause we taking that thing straight from up. Rain of vein, it emit a mighty mo. Form they trippin', gotta flow. And I got that ass up and fit, never trauma foe.